This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist. She joins me regularly to offer some context and professional insight for some of the themes that are touched on in the conversation with the featured guest at the beginning and end of the exchange. This episode is titled Filipino American in Me, and my guest is Mendrick Banzuela who is a youth counselor with the Bruce Wells Scholars Upward Bound Program in Worcester, Massachusetts. The conversations in this episode will revolve around the ways in which we experience growing up in the U.S. respectively as immigrants and the children of immigrants. To the beat of just one drum, what might be right for some may not be right for. Okay, I don't know like all the words to this. Do you recognize that tune? No, but I hear I, I like I like hearing you sing. Oh, okay, I was, okay, going, with right. I was going with it. Love and marriage, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. This I, does that ring a bell? It does, but why was that the next option? <laughs> okay, so I'm singing um, the show tunes of um, sitcoms that I was watching growing up. Um, I don't know if you watched much TV in the 80s and 90s, but I was kind of hooked to sitcoms growing up. I, I watched cartoons, but I was very much up on sitcoms, and the two um, that I just sang to you were Different Strokes. Yeah. Um. Although I was watching the reruns because that started in 79 before I was born. And then I shifted to Married with Children, which was like the irreverent version of the family that was presented in different strokes. But anyway, did you watch much TV growing up? Well, again, remember I had, you know, before 10, I was in Taiwan. And after 10, I was here in the States. And in terms of sitcoms, I remember learning English, watching sitcoms like... The Cosby Show. Okay. Remember Elf? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yep. Um, Punky Brewster. Yep. Um, Hold on. Before you move on. Maybe the world is blind. <laughs> or just a little unkind. That was a great theme song for Punky. All right. Oh, I just had to sing it. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway. So, yeah. So, I have some... Uh, a positive associations with some of these sitcoms. And in some ways it was my window into what United States is all about, right? Like a yep. little bit of the culture here and what family dynamics are like and what is cool and not cool. I think I got a lot of that by watching TV for better or worse. That's what happened. We got that synergy. You saw where I was going with this. So even though I was born here in the States, I very much felt like I was having an immigrant experience because what I was seeing on TV was not what was happening at home at all. Like I learned about quote unquote American culture watching TV. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the things I always talk about to folks was just how tripped up I would get when parent and child would have a disagreement. The, the child would talk back. Um, child would storm up the stairs and then slam a door. And I'm like, yo, wow. Wow, like I couldn't even come close to doing anything of the sort because that would just go very poorly. Like, what was your experience as you watched sitcoms? Did you feel as though they mirrored what you were experiencing at home? Not at all. <laughs> I think I had the same questions you had. Like, you know, when my my dad was definitely the the, the father figure, right, of the house and what he says go went, nobody questioned, including my own mother. Yeah. And so when I see these relationships depicted on in the media, I was really confused, curious, sometimes a little jealous. Yeah. Like I remember as a kid, like, oh, wow, like these families, they do these, you know, they do these activities together and they talk to each other and almost like they're friends. That was not 
dad was not trying to be our friend. Dad was trying to be our dad. You know, yeah. uh, we had family meetings that were one directional conversation. You know, is uh, it, it wasn't a conversation. It was he was telling us what was the right and what was the wrong. So it was, I think I found it amusing, I think. And I remember, um, I remember really being envious of the, of the Cosby's. I really liked the way that those characters were and they solved problems together and talked through things. There were a lot of joking around. I don't, I really loved that family um, and what it was showing me that was very different than my own family. You know, it's funny you mentioned the Cosby show because uh, growing up, I remember very vividly Thursday evenings, eight o'clock, and I watched all the reruns on Fox 25. But in watching that show, I said to myself, that's that's what I want when I grow up. Um, by no means was I ashamed of my own family or right. wishing that I could be something other than a Haitian American youth. But the success, you know, a doctor married to a lawyer, kids who are generally doing the right thing, the communication in the household that you reference. I said, when I have kids, I want to talk through issues with them. I want them to have a voice. And so I'm going to um, ask you a question here along these lines. If you're writing a story about your acculturation journey here in the States, what's the first story you'd share? Uh Again, thinking about the lens of a 10-year-old and a lot of my childhood associations, maybe just because of who I am, I have associations with food. And I think the acculturation came in trying to learn how to eat here. And I noticed a lot of cold things being served. And I mentioned before, cereal was cold. Didn't understand that concept. Sandwiches are cold, right? You got bread and whatever with cold cuts. And it's just not how we eat. Um, back at home. And so there's a lot of adjusting to that. Um, And this is probably a sadder story. I remember, you know, when I first go to school, my mom would pack me lunches and, you know, Chinese food and noticing that my lunch was very different than other people's and having some questions around that and having some looks that were thrown at me about my food. And I didn't have the language. I didn't speak English just yet to explain what this thing was or, you know, why I like what I'm eating. And I remember asking them to pack me something different. Mm. How old are you? I must have been in fourth, fourth grade, fifth grade. So 10, 11. And how'd they respond to that? They did it. Oh, no clash there. They just packed you something different. And what was the first different thing they packed you? I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Did you like it? No. (laughs) (laughs) Struggle through it. Was it Skippy's? Was it Chunky? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. But I will say they went with it. But what I would be curious about is what was that like for my mom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Food is love in my family. Like, that's just how it is. And so when I'm, here's your daughter coming in and saying, don't pack me that anymore and pack me this instead. And, you know, PB&J was, must have been new to my mom, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so yeah. she had to learn to make this thing that probably makes no sense in her mind even today for her child so that her child doesn't feel othered at school. I just think, wow, good for you, mom. And I was sure that that's my nightmare right now. So I have two kids. And when they were going to school, daycare, and they were able to heat up their lunches, I would send dumplings and fried rice and like you know and one of my biggest fears was like they will turn to me and say I don't want that oh mm. and they haven't done that yet they have not done that yet thank goodness um but anyway so that so a lot of my stories is around food and how, how I've had to learn to eat differently yeah similarly for me um if I were to write a story other than my experience with sitcoms um I would uh reflect on my first Thanksgiving Uh, I remember our first Thanksgiving was 1990, November 1990 or 1989. The year prior, when we got back from November break, the teacher asked the students, what did you have for Thanksgiving? I'm like, Thanksgiving? What's this Thanksgiving thing? And again, like I was born in this country. And so I went home and um, I, I don't know if I conferred with my brother about it, my older brother. But we both approached my mom and said, we want to have Thanksgiving dinner next year. And from then on, she prepared Thanksgiving dinner. And she was like, okay, so what 
other than turkey is at the table. We're like, you got to get mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce. And then when we actually had Thanksgiving, um, there was some on the table, like traditional Haitian food. And yeah, it was dope. But I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I saw on Charlie Brown. And so anyway, um, 30 some odd years later, still doing Thanksgiving. We're all acculturated. My kids expect it. Yeah, that's the, that, that's uh, the first chapter of my book. And interestingly, it was a story that uh, Richard Blanco shared in his book, The Prince of Los Cocuyos. He was a featured guest on the podcast um, and spoke here at Phillips Exeter a few years ago. And he shared a story about mm -hmm. Thanksgiving that was pretty funny. And so um, what we do with these, uh, with the first part of the episodes here is we set the stage for uh, the conversation with the featured guest. And so right now we're talking a little bit about our experiences um, being acculturated here in the United States. And the next question I have before we transition to that featured guest is, was the community you lived in inhabited by many other Taiwanese or Asian families? Um, or were you very much in the minority in your neighborhood? We were definitely a minority in our neighborhood, not only as Taiwanese, but as uh, people of Asian descent. Um, the community where we settled, San Bernardino, was predominantly Black, um, Hispanic, more specifically Mexican, um, and some Asians and some white. Okay, the reason I'm asking is because one of the things that comes across in the conversation that folks will listen to shortly is um, how in Worcester, a place like Worcester, immigrants tend to live in enclaves. When I lived in Boston, uh, the first nine, 10 years of my life, I swear to you, I didn't see anybody other than Haitians, Jamaicans, folks from the Caribbean. Um, and there were actually only a handful of African-Americans. So we very much lived in a Caribbean enclave in Boston. And so I was wondering if you had the same experience. No, and it was a very intentional decision by my father. Mm. My father did not want us to be in a predominantly Asian neighborhood. And here is his reasoning as he was as shared to us. There are cities and towns in LA County where you can probably get by just speaking Mandarin. You can, you know, the newsletter, the newspapers in Mandarin, billboards are in Mandarin. They're there now. And my father really wanted us to learn what it's like to be in the United States. I think my father was very intentional about wanting us to fully experience what it's like to be in the United States. And I think in his mind, that was predominantly a white space. We weren't here to learn Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> we were here to learn English. I was further explain that by saying in the beginning of our time here, my dad did not allow us to speak Mandarin in the house. Because mm. we were all learning English. Yeah. And he wanted us to practice English at home yeah. because he wanted us to, to learn as quickly as possible. So Chinese was not allowed. Taiwanese was not allowed at home. We fumbled through it. Once English was established, it was the reverse. Then we weren't allowed to speak English at home. We needed to maintain our mother tongue. So Mandarin was spoken at home, Taiwanese spoken at home, because now we can do English. Yeah, yeah. And that we we're going to keep doing that with school and everybody outside the house. So he reversed the rule and it was Mandarin only at home. So we wouldn't forget. That was one of his biggest fears that we would forget how to speak Chinese. All right. So I am joined for this episode by Mr. Mendrick Benzuela. He has one of the best names I've ever encountered. He's a former student of mine, uh, took my critical thinking class, and he was gracious enough to join me for an episode of Identity and Me to share a little bit about himself. Mendrick, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to be here. And honestly, it's been so long since you've talked about the critical thinking class that it just brought me way back yeah i mean i used to enjoy teaching that critical thinking class and i'm so happy that um something i said stuck um, <laughs> so you participated in the bruce wall scholars upward bound program as a worcester public school student you graduated from college how long ago now six-ish months okay wow so you're yep. fresh out of college i am fresh out of college all right, and where did you graduate from? I graduated from uh, Worcester State University, 
with a uh, major in sociology, a concentration in ethnic studies. So you um, concentrated in ethnic studies, and here we are today going to talk a little bit about your race and ethnicity. I recall very clearly looking at your name on my roster for the class and thinking, Mendrick Benzuela. I mean, this is a movie star that I'm about to uh, teach here. I need to come correct. But like, man, this dude has a name, Mendrick Benzuela. I could keep saying it over and over. It just has a good ring to it. When I reached out to you about interviewing for this episode, it was a surprise to me that you identify the way in which you identify. So I'm going to allow you to do that. So tell us how you identify. Sure. Yeah. So my full identification uh, would be Filipino American, uh, a cis male going by the pronouns of he and him, uh, student first, mentor second. Okay. You know, you're the first person that I've had on who has hit me with his pronouns when I asked how they identify. Also, that, speaks to, that speaks to your generation. It's, it's like clockwork to me right now, you know, working at Upward Bound, uh, exposing myself to students who identify with different pronouns, having lots of friends and uh, colleagues that don't identify with the standard binary genders. You know, I feel like I just, I just have to. Now in high school, do you recall using your pronouns or did this come up in college? This came up after college, actually. And no, I don't remember at all in high school. And culturally, do you talk about gender as a binary? It's interesting because as a Filipino, one thing that people should know about Filipinos that we're pretty conservative uh, because of the fact that we have religion as a prominent feature in our culture. You know, lots of Catholics or lots of Muslims, depending on which region of the Philippines you're in. So people would assume that it would be just binary. But, you know, going to the Philippines recently, I learned that it's just there's more to that. And the media, actually, um, a lot of people are open to being transgender, actually, which is pretty cool. But it's not talked about as we do here in America. Um, It's more of like a, I guess, a secret thing until they come out and then it's like a process to start talking about it, but. Okay. So were you born in the Philippines? No, I was born here in Worcester. Okay. All right. And your parents uh, immigrated here? Yes. Okay. And when did they come to the United States? <laughs> that That's a long story. So story goes, I was born on 1998 here in Worcester, Massachusetts. We stayed here for a year or so, then I had to move back to the Philippines uh, with my mom because my sister was there being taken care of by my grandmother. Mm-hmm. We stayed there for one or two years um, till I hit uh, kindergarten. Then I went to Italy where we regrouped with my dad and my brother till I was like second grade. Then it, we went back to the States. So I think that's around 2008, I believe, that we moved back Okay. Here. Do you remember living in Italy? Barely, barely. Slight memories here and there, but... Okay. All right. So you referenced uh, the Philippines as being a pretty conservative country that has become a little bit more uh, progressive in recent years. Um, but can you tell me a little bit more about um, your culture in general? How would you explain it to somebody who's an outsider? I say it's a mix of so many different things. Um, so a little bit of uh, Filipino history. Uh, Philippines has been, was colonized for about 300 years uh, by the Spaniards. Um, so there's a lot of Spanish influence. That's why if you see my name, specifically my last name, Banzuela, it has a very Spanish ring to it. A lot of Filipino last names, Ortiz, De La Cruz, um, you know, those typical Filipino names. They stem back from all those hundreds of years of colonization from the Spaniards. And then it got more and more westernized as the Americans took over. Some parts of the Philippines, um, when I mentioned uh, religion earlier, are Muslim. Uh, Some parts of the Philippines are very, I would say, Western Asian. I mean, yeah, Western Asian, where it's just influenced by their different beauty standards and just the food and the language and it's, it's so much just different cultures clashing against one another. 
And so, so tell I, me specifically about your family, uh, where your family falls with that. Sure. Uh, my family would definitely have to fall more on the Spanish and American side, mainly because of the food, mainly because of the language and religion being a very prominent factor in my life growing up, being uh, raised as a Catholic, uh, my last name being Banzuela, my middle name being Ortiz, yeah. having our food. You know, we have rice, but we eat with spoons and forks instead of just chopsticks. You know, it's small things right like that. Yeah. yeah. And then the American part really just comes from just being westernized and being not really transitioning into like when I came here to America, it, it wasn't too hard to transition to be quote unquote American. Got it. Okay. You know, so I went to college in Worcester and I was in Worcester for 18 years of my life. And one of the things I appreciated about Worcester were the different cultures that I encountered there. Um, prior to being in Worcester, uh, I wasn't around many Vietnamese folks, Ghanaians, Albanians. Um, and so you would be the first Filipino that I encountered in Worcester. Like, so there wasn't a large Filipino enclave in Worcester. So was that migration around the late 1990s, mid to late 1990s? I don't think there was a huge influx. I think if anything, the, if Filipinos migrated, they it would definitely be by the West Coast around California area, more on the, like, uh, the Western side of the United States. Yeah, like I said, California, there's a lot of Filipinos that I know in Arizona, Texas, uh, around that those areas of the United States. But up here in Western and the Northeast, it's pretty rare. Okay. Um, so given the rarity, how did you experience living in your neighborhood and being at school? Because there weren't many other Filipino families. Um, you grew up in a Filipino household, mm -hmm. lived in Italy for a while, you said, and then you're here. So how did you experience school and your neighborhood? It was, it was very interesting because I saw myself as Asian, um, mainly because of the color of my skin, my you know, physical features. So whenever I would hang out with other Asian students uh, growing up in high school or uh, in elementary school, it didn't feel like there was a connection because there was just that difference of culture. Um, yeah. You know, Worcester has a huge population of Vietnamese people, but I didn't speak their language. Um, I didn't eat their food. So it was just very weird to me, but I tried to fit in to see because I'm Asian, but it felt weird trying to fit in because my food, my last name, and my language was completely different from theirs. So how did you try to fit in specifically? I would just try to hang out with the Asian kids. You know, I, I saw them when I first came into the cafeteria in elementary school and said, Hey, you know, you look like me. Why don't we hang out? Hmm. You, you didn't know? say that like word for word, right? Like you didn't. No, probably not. Like, hey, you guys, y'all yeah. look like me. See? No, no, no. Actually, there is a funny story though, as to how I met my very first best friend. Okay. And how I found the second Filipino in Worcester, okay. Worcester Public Schools, actually. It was the, the first day of seventh grade. One of my old friends from elementary school comes up to me on this first day. And he's just like, Mendrick, Mendrick, I have to introduce you to someone. You're going to love this dude. And I'm just like, okay, what's up? I meet this dude sitting by himself in the cafeteria. And I'm just like, damn, he seems familiar. And I thought of myself, and I'm just like, huh, there's this weird connection that we have. I don't know what it is. Yeah. So I go up to him, and I'm just like, hey, don't tell me, but are you Filipino? <laughs> and the next thing I know, he was a Filipino, and we have been best friends ever since. And then as soon as that happened, you know, I kept finding more and more Filipinos here and there, just staggered all over Worcester. They don't, like, stand out. They don't do anything to, like, stand out. But it was just very interesting and I guess exciting to just sure. find other people that speak the same language, that have the same culture, that eat the same food. So, yeah. It's interesting for me to hear that um, Filipinos in Worcester don't live in clusters because you generally find um, uh, ethnic communities that live in clusters. When I lived in Dorchester, for example, mm -hmm. uh, growing up, you could count on there being at least five to six Haitian families 
on a street in Dorchester at my school, my Catholic school. I was there from third to uh, fifth grade. A majority of the students were Afro-Caribbean, mostly Haitian. Um, and so it's interesting to hear that um, Filipinos in Worcester don't necessarily live mostly in a particular community and that they're spread out. Yeah, and I think that really has to deal with just not having a huge migration into Worcester. But we do, we do come conglomerate together once we do go to church. Um, growing up, that's what I noticed. Um, there would be huge Filipino services at this one specific national shrine. Um, but it's not in Worcester. It's in Attleboro, actually. It's called the National Shrine of La Salette. And there's a huge Filipino community that just goes there uh, from all different places all over Massachusetts. Um, and that's where I got to like know more Filipinos that are in Worcester. So from elementary school to middle school to high school, I learned that, yeah, I'm Filipino. I'm the only one that makes me stand out, which is kind of cool. But at the same time, you know, I can kind of like take a little bit of other people's cultures and kind of like make it my own in a way mm. um, by fitting in with the other white kids and the other black kids and the other Asian kids and the Hispanic kids. Was there a particular group of students that embraced you more than others? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I mean, going through, um, through Worcester Public Schools, it was a very diverse group. Yep. So it's kind of hard to tell like, which group accepted me more. I just felt accepted uh, for being Filipino and for like, being different. Yeah because going to in a very diverse school, everybody's just different. Yeah, that's one of the aspects I enjoyed about being in Worcester, honestly. It's why I ultimately um, picked Clark and was comfortable going to Clark despite there being less than 10% students of color on the campus. Because when I walked into the community, I saw a lot of different people. Um, I could uh, go into a local restaurant and get some Ghanaian food or Vietnamese food, get a haircut without worrying about getting a bad cut. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, no, that's a real thing, man. Like I couldn't have survived in college not knowing where I was going to get a haircut or being able to get some different food because the food on campus, Worcester State is different in this sense though. Worcester State got bomb food on campus. Y'all got a good situation though. Um, so I have a follow-up question for you. Sure. I'm wondering did you have to do much code switching from home to school? Did you have to speak differently? Did you have to engage differently with people? Did you have to change your intonation mm. with words? Um, and I asked this question because mm. uh, my experience uh, in school and at home, because uh, you know my family's Haitian, um, I was first generation, my parents mostly spoke Creole at home. Uh, when I went, especially when I moved to predominantly white communities, um, I didn't engage at school the way I engaged at home. And in my neighborhood, I lived across the street from the projects where a majority of the people living there were African-American. I, I had to know how to engage in that community. So I'm wondering if you had a similar experience uh, code switching and trying to figure out how to communicate with people in different spaces. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like I've code switched a lot. Uh, speaking in my household, uh, it's a mix between Tagalog and English. Uh, for me personally, it is just more prominently English, mainly because my uh, my parents never really tried to teach me Tagalog because they wanted me to speak English so I can succeed in, you know, in my classes here in America. Uh, but I really just wanted to like learn Tagalog. So, you know, I did self-study. So my, my Tagalog is actually broken. I can't even count past four, but <laughs> we don't talk about that. Okay. Um, but once I'm out of the household, it's more of like more prominent, uh, more proper English, more professional English, where a majority of the people would understand me, um, especially if I'm working in more professional spaces, more educational spaces. I would have to speak with a higher vocabulary, I would say. I would have to articulate more. I would have to expand on my words more. Um, and that way I felt like I would be smarter. Um, and then when I would be hanging out with my friends, I would have a whole different type of slang. I would have a different type of lingo. I would say y'all, I would say, yo, you know, bro, 
man, come on, you know, yeah. lots of contractions here and there. Um, so it really depends on where I'm at. Um, sometimes it would change between races, uh, which different race I'm like hanging out with too. Yep. Um, usually when I'm with, uh, my white friends, I don't say a lot of like yo's and, um, like y'all's it's more of like, man, dude, come on, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely interesting to just, uh, see how I transitioned from home to work, to school, to hanging out with friends and, uh, leisure time. Do you remember consciously, uh, when you started realizing that you had to code switch in high school or around like sophomore year, I started noticing that I had to act certain, uh, a certain way around different types of people. Was it ever inauthentic? Were you going up to people like, yo, homie, what's good, son? You know, like, were you going, <laughs> were you going hard having people look at you like, yo, is he serious right now? No, no, no. It was never like that. I, I would, if I ever did that, no. Um, no, it was never like that. It was more, it was more natural to me. Yeah, uh, Why you think about that? So my experience with this is more so, you know, with uh, white folks who encounter me and they're a little bit unsettled, right? And they want to um, show me that they're down, that I don't have to worry about them. And, um, and so um, I get the awkward dap. You know, they like come hard with it. Yeah. You know, like they're like grabbing your hand and they're snapping yeah. off hard. It's not a seamless snap. And it's the way they come in with it. You know what I mean? And right, so right. Um, I, I know there are instances, and these are in professional situations um, that I've had this happen. Um, and so I asked the question in that vein, like, were you like ever guilty of trying too hard? No. If I feel awkward if, and if I feel like it's not going to work, I just don't do it. I go for the safer route, just having a handshake or just waving hello. What Sometimes, about the other way? What about towards you? You ever find people coming at you differently in an attempt to connect with you? Yeah, actually. Um, mainly because I look different ethnicities. Um, some people have, a lot of people have definitely came up to me in their own specific languages uh, addressing me in their own specific languages because some people thought I was I looked Hispanic. Other people, you know, said I looked Asian, so they would address me in their own specific languages, which is interesting to see. Um, yeah, I think that's like the biggest thing. Like, but the handshakes, though, I haven't really seen that. Not, not, not to me. Oh man, yeah. When you go to conferences, if you got black colleagues, hang with your black colleagues and just observe how um, people interact with them. It, it'll happen. I promise you. Um, just to kind of close the loop with home, school, and neighborhood, is there any sort of clash of culture in your household between you and your family? And I'm not even talking about um, language now. I'm talking about values. Yes, yes, definitely. There's, I've had a lot of arguments with my parents. My brothers and my sister had a lot of arguments with my parents just um, growing up because we were raised differently than my parents have. Um, if I remember correctly on how my mom and my dad were raised, they had to, they had to manage going to school, taking care of the family, learning how to cook and clean at the same time and, uh, to put God first, really growing up in America is completely different because growing up in America. Pause. I've noted that you say growing up in America, as opposed to the United States. Why do you say that? Maybe it's because I don't feel like we're so united. Ooh. I mean, okay. All right. All right. I mean, I'm just stating facts here. All right. <laughs> but anyway, I took you off track. I right, go back to your response. Sorry. No worries. Yeah. So growing up here in America, I feel like more of a carefree lifestyle. There you go. Whereas in the Philippines, when my parents had to, it was more of a survival kind of like lifestyle because my dad had to work a job while he was in school, while he was um, like, taking care of his brothers and sisters and his parents, you know, here in America, I didn't really have to worry about that because I had my mom, I had my dad to, to rely on, to, you know, bring in the income, cook the food and everything. Um, so I was more carefree to actually hang out with friends and to enjoy the benefits of learning and education. You know, they, they were able to get a college degree in the Philippines. Um, but 
it, it, I guess there's also a difference in the education here uh, and the difference in values here in the United States. Um, so one of the more prominent things is sex education, right? There's definitely more of a open conversation here within uh, America about sex education, where protection, you know, safe sex and all that, uh, HIV, AIDS, whereas in the Philippines, it's a little bit more of a taboo topic. So a lot of the arguments and the clashing came with that me being open-minded, me and my, my sister and my brother being open-minded, as opposed to my parents staking and being grounded within their own culture and how they grew up. Have dealing with the differing views at home enabled you to go into a space like a college classroom and engage with others when you don't agree with their point of view? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm definitely more open to having a discussion with someone. I've been more prepared to deal with different perspectives, especially ones that are very strong. My parents aren't just only conservative, but they're also uh, getting more open-minded. You know, the more, I guess, arguments that I've had, but more exposure to my kind of ideology and more uh, exposure of their ideology towards me, we're able to meet a middle ground where we can agree on some things and agree to disagree on other things. And I ask that question because of my own experience in my household. Um, what a lot of people who aren't Haitian don't realize is that there are segments of the Haitian community that are very conservative, especially the older generation. Um, they're very socially conservative. And when I encounter conservative views now as an adult, I'm more willing to have a cross-ideological um, exchange with somebody uh, because of the number of times I had to have those conversations at home with my family, with my parents. And so right. it kind of translated outside of the household. So you're a first-generation college graduate? Yes. All right. So racially, you identify as Asian. Ethnically, you identify as Filipino. You're mm -hmm. first-generation. Um, you're male. But the first three things that I said are most relevant. How was your college experience around those three identities? Did you feel as though Worcester State did a good job of making you feel like you were part of the community? Um, was your transition to college seamless? And what was the experience like overall? Not to put any shade with Worcester State University. You graduated. They can't do nothing to you. You're right. You're right. Worcester State was a, it was an eye opener. Because mainly, mainly because of the fact that there was a huge population of white students. Huge. Um, when you say huge, put a percentage on it. 80%. Okay. Wow. At Worcester State? I mean, that's, that's what I saw mainly at Worcester okay. State. Yeah. There, was a, there was a good population of, of uh, ethnic groups, but it's not a huge population of Asians and it's not a huge population of black folks, not a huge uh, uh, population of like Latino folks, you know, yeah. it's, it's them mixed together to make that diverse population as opposed to the white population. Okay. Coming from a very diverse high school, transitioning into a predominantly white college has just like taken me back mainly because of the fact that I think they made me feel more of a prize to show around saying, Hey, look, we have another Asian on campus. You know, look at us. Um, so hold on. You didn't feel affirmed. You felt tokenized. Yes. Okay. Continue please. Um, so, you know, going through class uh, when it comes to like Asian studies or having the Asian perspective, they always look towards me. And Asian is such a huge, huge category because you have, you know, Filipinos, which is a completely different Asian. Then you have the Eastern Asians of China, Japan, Korea, which completely differs from Southeast Asia. You know, you have these, these different like Asian cultures. But also another thing that I want to do bring up is the fact that I was a first gen student. Like, yes, I did say earlier that my parents did go to college, but it's a completely different experience from uh their time in college and my time in college, because for me, I was a commuter student. Um, I didn't live on campus, so I didn't feel as connected to Worcester State as the residents did because I wasn't there. I didn't really make too many friends. 
I would come into Worcester State at eight o'clock for my 10 o'clock class because I had to find parking and I had to make time for that. As soon as classes are done, then I would just leave. That's that's also another like uh, aspect that separated me from the rest of the students at uh, Worcester State. But that's not necessarily a function of your race or ethnicity. That was more like being a commuter, right? I think they go hand in hand in a way because of the fact that many of um, the ethnic groups um, coming in from a low income uh, situation, they tend to be more of commuters within uh, Worcester State. There weren't many boarders who were students of color, you're saying? Yeah, it it was uh, rare to see. What up, son? What up, Shahizzle? Shahizzle, Stena. Shahizzle. Shahizzle. I can't believe I told you that. <laughs> the, the, the grays in my beard and being a parent and driving a dad van have disqualified me from speaking in a particular manner. You lost your card. I did. Yes, absolutely. And so um, I'm thinking about code switching right now. It came up towards the end of the episode, and I wanted to discuss that with you. Um, And before I get into like the heavier question, have you found that you have often had to code switch in different settings or are you pretty much the same and that's always been the case? Hmm. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. I think I've always been the same person deep down in my core. I think how I code switch is what I share of myself and how I share with of myself. Mm-hmm. That's what sh- switches. Um, but who I am, I hope, uh, folks have found to be consistent. I'm not a different person, but I may just be a different feel of who I am. Yeah, yeah. I think as an immigrant, I have been taught to not overshare. Mm. And part of that is because of a fee of safety needs. You know, I think my, my parents have always taught us to kind of keep our cards closed and be more observant rather than just kind of jump in the room and start oversharing or taking over the room. Um, and part of that, it's like, you don't, once you share information, you don't know what people do with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think I've been taught to, to not overshare about who I am. And then as a profession, as a psychologist, my job is not to share who I am. My job is to focus more on you, right? Yeah, Whoever yeah. you are across the room from me. I think my life is a little different now working where I work. But up until recently, you never see a picture of my children in my office. You'll never see a picture of my family. It's just, it's not about me, right? Yeah. In that room, it should just be a safe space for whoever's coming in. Yeah. So even doing this podcast with you is, it's pushing my comfort zone a little bit. I'm sharing a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And thank you for that. Much appreciated. Yeah. So I think co-switching is just that, you know, when I'm with you, Sena, I feel like I have this comfort and safety with you that I share a lot and it comes even just in conversation, whether the recording is on or off. It just, it just happens. I'm know? so honored. I just gave myself a hug hearing <laughs> you say that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been told I'm an easy person to talk to. You are. Everybody but my kids, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then you see me in my professional lens, my professional side, and I think there's ways that I don't share all some of these stories sure. more you know, easily. So that, I think that's how I code switch, how much of me I share. And how would you define code switching? I think code switching is a skill that one learn over time in order to de- adapt to various environments and audiences in order to achieve a desired goal, mm. whatever that desired goal is. Yeah. So as a psychologist, I am very reserved on my personal life. And that goal is because the agenda is about the client, not about me. When I'm in a professional setting and I, um, don't joke around a lot. I am a little bit more reserved and I kind of stick to the facts. And it's my goal is to communicate a, a level of professionalism and trying to be taken seriously. And, you know, when I'm back home and my goal is just to relax and just 
be, and I'm not trying to be anybody but myself. And there's the goal is just to be uh, home. Then you see a much more relaxed side of me, a lot more goofy, funny, you know, joking, silly, sometimes obnoxious side of me just because I can. And yeah. I'm in the safety with people that can allow me to do that. I got to see the obnoxious version of you sometime. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. Okay. And I'm looking forward to that. I keep I'm, trying to invite you over. Yeah, I'm, I'm in there. I, I, I'm in there soon. But like we have hung out a couple of times, though, like your birthday party, you came close to being obnoxious. Uh, I'm just kidding. Not even close. That was a lot of fun. That was the best virtual party I think I'll ever attend. Straight up. A lot of fun. It was rocking pandemic party. So I'm thinking about code switching for me. And yeah, this matter of adapting to a setting. And for me, it often comes in the form of language. And um, so, as I've shared many times, uh, my family's from Haiti. Um, I learned how to speak English in school, not at home. And when I speak to my parents or to my mom, who's my only living parent, I have to change the way in which I speak to her. I have to keep it basic in English, not because she isn't intelligent, but because her vocabulary isn't as expansive as my vocabulary is. So I have to identify a lane in which to speak with her so that she understands everything that I'm sharing with her. And right. that's often difficult when we're talking about medical or financial matters. And so I can speak Creole, but there are times where I have to explain something in English because I am not as fluent in Creole. I speak it well, but I, I, it's just certain things are more comfortably related in English or related in English. Work is another place that I have to code to it. So when I'm with my friends or I refer to them as my homies um, at work, if I say homies in the past, especially before I got to PEA, I felt as though there was a judgment that would come with saying homies versus friends. It's like, hold on, Hadley has homies? What's, what's going on here? Uh, so I got to say friends and, and be far less colloquial at work and be more professional and one of the things I really appreciate about working at PEA is that this embrace, at least that I feel, um, particularly because I work in the Office of Multicultural Affairs, to just show up as I am. Mm -hmm. I, I can tell you straight up who you see at work is who I am. And that's the first time in my life that I could say that through and through. And so anyway, I don't want to make this too much about me. I'm trying to get a sense of when people figure out that they have to code switch. I think for some of us, and perhaps folks of color, immigrants, first gens, perhaps, we've been taught. Folks have come along to coach us that you need to do these things, yeah. right? Whether it's parents having these conversations with us as children, we've been taught that there's a difference and that you navigate that world. I wonder if also other people are taught it because they had a critical incident. Something happened, mm. right? Mm. Where they didn't switch and were judged or were viewed upon a certain way, or they got a certain different type of treatment, right? Something hurt in that experience that they say, whoa, that did not go as I thought. What happened there? And so they had to renegotiate that. So the next time they approach a similar situation, they say, well, the last time I did this, this is what happened. This time I'm going to approach it differently. So it's by trial and error and these critical incidences that then people learn, oh, shoot, I have to act differently. I can't talk like that to my boss the way I talk with my friends. And within organizations, people notice who gets the spoils. You know, um, when you look at the leadership team in front of you, how do they express themselves? How do they look? You start to think to yourself, well, there's a particular way in which I have to show up in order to be taken seriously enough to be put in this role. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Yep. And so in your mind, what can organizations do to minimize the amount of code switching people feel they have to do? Organizations and schools. Mm. Well, can I just make one point? I don't always think that code switching is bad. All right. I really do think that it is a skill set. Um, and research have shown that folks who are able to code switch folks who are bilingual, you know, folks who navigate multiple cultures, we are more cognitively more, we are more cognitively flexible. Yep. And that's actually a strength that we have. I, I often refer to it as a superpower. 
<laughs> but I also recognize at some point when you're doing too much of it, does it perhaps take a toll on you personally? Yeah. Yes. And that's why you and I have experiences of going home. And when we go home and we walk into our mother's kitchens, it's like, ah, right. And so I go back to your question of what can organizations do? I think provide more of those exhale moments for folks that they don't have to code switch. They can just be themselves. Now you have been able to find a, a, a place where you can walk in to a, your job and feel you are you. How do we create that for more people across an organization? So is it affinity spaces? Is it other safe spaces? Is it, you know, having more representation in leadership mm. where we can see a more right array yep. of, uh, of folks being themselves and being rewarded for being yep. themselves and that themselves look differently than the next person who is a leader sitting next to them. I think these are all ways an organization she can, can make it possible for folks to not have to if they don't want to. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversations in this episode. Special thanks to Sahoy for her continued willingness to partner with me on this podcast. I also appreciate Mendrick taking the time to be a guest and sharing some of his story with me. Hopefully there were many takeaways for you. I know there were for me. A lingering thought for me is how our experiences equipped us with the ability to be versatile and adaptable. Sure, there are difficult moments, but I feel like we're mostly better for having come up the way we did. And while we all weathered storms along the way, that doesn't mean that the spaces we frequent and inhabit don't have a responsibility to make space for us in real ways. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity and the-